Hello. Welcome back to Soul Gum. Thank you for being here. How are you doing? I am doing well. I missed you. I know I released two episodes and then I went quiet. I would explain myself, but I feel like you don't really care probably, right? So today we are going to be talking about death anxiety. Why are we so afraid to die, basically? And then we're also going to talk about how do we get less afraid to die? Or what has that looked like for me? What tools have been helpful for me? Because that's definitely not a one-size-fits-all thing. So obviously these are intense topics, right? This episode will not be for everyone. So I have some content warnings and disclaimers before we dive in here. Number one, obviously we're going to be talking about death extensively in this episode. I don't want to say don't listen if talking and thinking about death is upsetting to you because, well, number one, I think it's upsetting to almost everyone to some extent. And number two, I think this episode might be the most interesting to those of you who are particularly anxious about death, or at least some of you. But if talking and thinking about death is distressing to you, this episode is going to be distressing to you. So I will be here. I promise I won't wait so long before I put out another episode, or I don't promise, but I'll try my best and just absolutely no offense taken if this is not the episode for you. Do what's best for you. Next, we're going to be talking about anxiety and mental health here and I I think this is abundantly obvious when I open my mouth, but I want to say it anyway. I am not a doctor. I am not a mental health professional. I am the opposite of a mental health professional, okay? So anything I say in this episode, this is not advice to the extent it doesn't resonate with you. This is like a friend chat, you know, picture you and me, we're driving in the car, we're hanging out, we're talking about how we cope. That's the vibe. I'm, I'm not an authority on any of this. Last little disclaimer here. On this podcast so far, we've sort of talked about modern social trends and issues from certain old perspectives. For example, we focused on philosophy and history a fair amount, but this is the first episode where we're really getting into spirituality a little bit. And I want to say just a couple things that apply on a blanket basis anytime we ever are talking about spirituality. Number one, my spiritual vantage point has been very informed by religions and cultures that do not belong to me, never have, and never will in any way. So for example, I'm a big student of Raja Yoga, which is a Hindu practice. I am a practitioner of death meditation. We'll be talking about that. That's primarily a Buddhist practice. I talk about these things and I'm going to talk about them today because they've had a profound impact on my life and where I am now spiritually and my current relationship with life and death. But I want to be abundantly clear. I'm not an expert or an authority on anything, but especially not cultures that do not belong to me. Second thing, I need you to know that regardless of where you are on the atheist to spiritual to devoutly religious spectrum, that I respect your beliefs and I think only you can know what's best for you spiritually. It's really important to me that I never evangelize the specifics of my relationship with God. And I truly believe that genuine spirituality can be experienced a million different ways, both within and outside the context of organized religion. Personally, my spiritual journey 
started in the context of the Southern Baptist Christian Church. And now it's much more nebulous than that. And I think that will be obvious as I'm talking today about how my perception of death has changed over time. So I just want to be really clear in talking about changed beliefs. I never intend to come off as like hating on my past beliefs or anyone's beliefs. I have deep respect for religion. I think it can be so beautiful and and devoutness, devotion is so beautiful. Now, of course, I understand the venom that people feel when it comes to faith systems they grew up in and were burned by. I totally get that, but we can criticize bigotry and systemic issues in institutions and talk about our experiences without judging people categorically. Okay, that was a bit of a little rant, but all that to be said, my opinions and beliefs are just that, my opinions and beliefs. And I I am not an expert. I am not positioning myself as like the truth. And I totally respect your opinions and beliefs, even if they're really different from mine. You know what's best for you. Okay? Okay. I know that was a lot of disclaiming. Let's get into it. So, death anxiety. What are we talking about here? So, the American Psychological Association defines death anxiety as emotional distress and insecurity aroused by reminders of mortality, including one's own memories and thoughts of death. Okay, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't be criticizing the American Psychological Association. They certainly know better than I do. So when I say death anxiety, I am talking about an intense, intrusive, maybe even debilitating fear of death and or the process of dying. Either or both with respect to your own death or the death of other people. So I want to quickly tell you about something called the Collett Lester Fear of Death Scale because I think it paints a good picture of the wide range of ways death anxiety can look and feel. So the Collett Lester Fear of Death Scale is a death anxiety assessment tool that is used to identify not only the severity, the degree of someone's death anxiety, but also the nature of it, meaning what element of death specifically are they afraid of? So for example, it asks you on a scale of one to five, what level of fear you feel about the circumstances of your own death, meaning what level of fear do you feel about the isolation of death or what it will feel like to be dead or the prospect of never experiencing anything again. That's it for me. That's my thing. It also asks you about your fear of the circumstances of the process of dying. So like how afraid are you of the physical degeneration that will happen as you're approaching death or the mental degeneration or the possibility of dying in a hospital away from like your friends and family and people you know. I know that's very dark. And then it also asks you questions about your level of fear around the circumstances of others' deaths. So I mentioned this assessment, this scale, because I think it shows that death anxiety is a really big bucket. I talk about being afraid of death a lot. And so by virtue of that, I hear from other people who are also afraid of death. And I find that 
people are afraid of very different elements of death. So someone else might also be very afraid of death, but we're afraid of totally different things. Death anxiety, in my opinion, encompasses a lot of different fears about the ephemerality of life, the process of dying, the state of being dead, in each case with respect to yourself and others. So it's a big bucket. So that's the what. What death anxiety means to me. Now I'm going to talk about the why of it all. Why are we so scared of dying? So I want to first attack this question from, I don't know if this would be like a psychological perspective or a sociological perspective. So I want to tell you about the work of Ernest Becker and specifically his book, The Denial of Death, which won a Pulitzer in the 70s. I'm going to read you a quote that I think gets right to the guts of the reason for at least my own death anxiety. So he's talking here about what I think he calls the paradox of being human. He says, this is the paradox. A human is out of nature and hopelessly in it. We are dual, up in the stars and yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. A human is literally split in two. We have an awareness of our own splendid uniqueness in that we stick out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet we go back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It's a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. So, ouchie, right? Like I said, this work was published in the 70s, and as a society at that time, we were very obsessed with Sigmund Freud. He was that girl. He was the Beyonce of psychology, if you will, the Alex Earl of psychology. And particularly, there was a fixation on Freud's theory that we humans have one core repression. Okay, one fundamental thing about ourselves that we try desperately to deny that kind of controls everything we do. So Freud thought sexual repression was the core tension of humankind and drove human behavior. And so thinking about Ernest Becker's work in the context of its time, in the denial of death, Ernest Becker is basically pushing back on Freud's idea that the core problem, the core tension of humankind is sexual repression. And he's positing that it's actually repression of our awareness of our inevitable death. He thought that basically all human progress, all human activity, all human evil is driven by a desire to transcend mortality and escape from this deep awareness we have that we are going to die. So how did Becker think we do that? Basically, he thought we spent our lives finding ways to convince ourselves that we can achieve eternal life, both literally For example, by buying into a belief system that includes afterlife and following whatever code that belief system links to a positive afterlife experience, or even more figuratively, by striving to leave things behind that will make us, in some sense, live on beyond our death, whether that's children or a legacy or an accomplishment or billions of dollars or even a big act of evil. Under Becker's model of thinking, human greed and human ambition and our drive for connection, our drive for reproduction, all of that is somewhat driven from root desire to transcend death. 
So I talk about Ernest Becker's work because I think it's an interesting take on the why, right? The why we're so scared to die. Maybe we feel anxious about death because we have a hardwired, inherent psychological conflict that arises from having, on the one hand, a strong, driving self-preservation instinct, and on the other hand, an awareness that death is inevitable. And perhaps that tension controls a lot of what we do. Our belief systems, our family structures, our goals on earth, our greed, our violence, what we want out of life, kind of everything. Okay, so in thinking about the why of it all, the why are we so afraid of death, I think that paradox of being human is part of it for most of us, that tension between our survival instinct and our awareness that we're going to die. But we don't all experience fear of death at the same level. So that can't be all there is, right? Becker's work on this topic and this way of thinking about the fear of death is very existential, very universal. But in the real world, we don't experience death anxiety at the same level as other people. So next, I want to continue the why by talking about how culture has shaped our relationship with death historically and how it shapes it today. So let's start here by winding it all the way back to the dawn of human civilization. Our drive to defy death is clear in the earliest civilizations we know of, the first traces of human critical thinking. Many of you have probably read in high school or college, or at least you're familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think I read it in college, which is, I think it's the oldest piece of literature known to humankind. It's at least like one of the very first. I don't know, really. I don't remember, but it's very old, okay? It was written, or rather it was etched onto stone tablets 4,000 years ago, and it's basically about Gilgamesh's mission to try to discover eternal life. And I don't remember, I don't know this well enough to be talking about it, but Gilgamesh fails in his mission to discover eternal life. I think the most famous line in it is something like, life, you will look for it and you'll never find it. That's kind of amazing, right? When you think about that, that is the first thing we as a species wrote down basically ever. This poor man took the time to etch however many words into stone and millennia later, here I am with my little microphone talking about the exact same stuff and the problem, the problem of death is still unsolved. And I don't think it will ever be solved. I don't think we will ever be able to defy death of our body and mind, right? And I think we'll never stop trying for as long as humans exist. I actually read recently that there is a company currently that is selling the opportunity to freeze your brain after you die with the idea being that once technology advances, your brain could be transferred to, I don't know, like a jar, a human, a human, I have no idea. It could be transferred to something that in theory would live forever. And that was frightening to me. And it also reminded me of this story that I heard about a long time ago from I think the 1800s about a scientist in Russia. Let me Google his name. A scientist named Sergei Vonarov, I'm sure I'm saying that horribly wrong, who thought he could prolong life 
by sewing a piece of a monkey testicle to a human's testicle. Which I don't even know why that would do anything. That doesn't even make sense. Apparently it caught on and hundreds of people got this procedure. Which I hate that for them and also for the monkeys. So I guess let's freeze your brain and hope for a better tomorrow phase. This phase we're currently in is an improvement from the let's glue a monkey testicle to your testicle if you have a testicle that's another thing about the testicle like what if you don't have a testicle i personally do not have one are all of us non-testicle havers just condemned to die my point with all this is that we have had death anxiety from the jump and just like becker suggested we've done a lot of wild things and spent a lot of brain power over the years trying to transcend death. In these examples, by reaching for actual immortality of our human bodies and minds. And so far, that prospect is not looking good. So we have been trying not to die forever, and we've been failing. Assuming this monkey testicle business does not yield fruit of immortality, what is the next best option? What's the next thing? immortality through afterlife, right? So if we take as a given that our human minds and our human bodies are always going to die, then afterlife, eternal life of the soul, is our only option to not die in any meaningful way. Across time and different cultures, we see this enduring idea of afterlife and often a judgment day or judgment process that determines your afterlife experience based at least in part on your behavior on earth. So for example, ancient Egyptians believed that your heart was weighed against a feather and if it was heavier than the feather, it was too heavy to enter the afterlife journey. I think that's what it was. I think it was that if it was heavy, that meant it was like full of wrongdoing, right? So it, it was rejected for that reason. My point here, this way of thinking endures today, even though we don't use that exact analogy. In both Eastern and Western religions, we see this enduring idea that our behavior during this human life on earth affects our outcomes in afterlife or in our next life on earth. We think about Gilgamesh trying to live forever 4,000 years ago and tech companies today pouring money into biotech startups and cryogenics and frozen brains and the Russian scientist guy with the monkey testicles and and we think about the way major religions of the past and current major religions digest afterlife and it's just very fascinating to me how static it is in a way, how little our base desires and questions have changed, and how little we know still, and the extent to which we're all grasping at the same questions with different versions of the same answers. And when it comes to trying to defy death medically, trying to prevent death of the physical body and brain, we're more or less still out here taping monkey testicles to ourselves. I mean, not really. Medical professionals, that is not at all a dig. You're amazing and you're doing great. And we've made massive strides in terms of human health and human longevity. But my personal uninformed belief is that no matter what we do, no matter how amazing doctors are, we're never going to 
defy physical death. And when it comes to afterlife, we're kind of doing what we've been doing forever with this enduring idea across time and cultures, this hope that life exists after death. Okay, so in that last bit, we talked about the historical trappings of our relationship with death and how it has evolved and in some ways stayed static across history. Now I want to talk about how different groups of people existing now relate to death. Speaking categorically, who among us today is the most scared of death? It goes without saying that these are generalizations based on studies of large groups of people and trends and that no group of people, be that an age group of people or people from one country or people of one religion, are a monolith in terms of how they think about death or anything else. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because I think it will point to trends in terms of the why of death anxiety that will be helpful as we start to talk about how to not have death anxiety, how to manage our fear of death. So starting with nationality, something that is pretty well documented and studied is differences in death awareness and death anxiety between Eastern and Western cultures. And pretty consistently, these studies show that individuals brought up in Western cultures tend to experience more death anxiety than individuals brought up in Eastern cultures. And thinking about why that may be, there are some obvious differences in how Eastern and Western cultures relate to death. Again, these are generalizations, but Western societies are generally more avoidant when it comes to the particulars of death and even aging. So you think about how we handle funeral and post-death rituals in the U.S. So think about the common practice of closed casket funerals in the U.S. or at least very, very limited interaction with the realities of a body. So if you're seeing a body at a Western funeral, it likely has been manipulated in a variety of ways to make it not smelly and leaky and scary and less dead body-ish. Versus in Eastern cultures, or at least traditional Eastern culture, and obviously globalization has removed a lot of the starkness of these cultural differences. Traditionally, there is a lot more handling of the body by someone's loved ones, not the hospital staff and the funeral director, etc., than you would see in the West. So an example of this is the traditional practice of ash stacking in Japan. Japan has the highest cremation rate in the world. And this practice of ash stacking is one where following cremation, the family of the deceased person will sort through the bones themselves and they will stack them in order from feet bones all the way up to your skull in your urn. With the idea being that you don't want your loved one to spend an eternity with their bones all out of sore or their head below their feet, you want their bones in order in the urn. Another example is the practice of Tibetan sky burials. It's a practice in Tibet where when someone in the community dies, their body is brought to a mountaintop to be consumed by vultures. 
And again, this is an ancient traditional practice. I don't know that this is particularly common anymore due to things like urbanization and globalization, but I think it's worth mentioning because it points to that underlying deeper death awareness compared to the death avoidance that we typically see in the West. So knowing that individuals existing in Eastern societies are typically more comfortable with death than individuals existing in Western societies, and that traditionally Eastern societies are more death aware and Western societies are more death avoidant, that seems to suggest that maybe death awareness is an element of a healthy relationship with death. And maybe one reason why individuals existing in Eastern societies are typically more comfortable with death is that they interface with it more. For example, by taking in an elderly loved one and witnessing their dying process or by having mourning and post-death practices that are less removed from the physical realities of death. So we just talked about how nationality might affect your relationship with death. Next, let's talk about religious status. Studies on the relationship between religious status and death anxiety are confusing and inconsistent. So for example, two people named Duff and Hong did a study in the 90s and found that death anxiety and religious status have a positive correlation, meaning you are more likely to be anxious about death if you are religious. But then another study the same year found the opposite thing. You are less likely to be anxious about death if you are religious. This is just my uninformed opinion, but I think it's kind of both and neither because it really depends on how much you buy in. On the one hand, if you are fully convicted, you have no doubt in your model of divinity and afterlife and the steps you need to take to lock in a positive afterlife experience, then you're vibing, right? You are like, wow, what time does death start? And on the other hand, I think sometimes religious people or formerly religious people can be the most anxious about death. Because if you did believe at some point, if you grew up believing in a model of the universe that includes afterlife, at some point, when the bottom drops out of your faith, if it does, you haven't had this gradual comeuppance into the idea that you're going to die. One minute you are vibing and then you pull a thread and everything starts to unravel so fast and you land at the bottom of a rabbit hole in full-blown nihilistic existential dread. And by the way, the questions you're left with go far past what happens when I die. It's what am I even doing here? What is the point of all this? Is there a point? I understand why religion would affect people's relationship with death inconsistently because some people find their religious model to be a really satisfying answer for what happens after death and others don't. Okay, so the jury's out on how religion affects our relationship with death. The last thing I want to talk about in this categorical breakdown section is age and generational differences. And what I found here is really interesting. A study done in Britain in late 2020 at the height of the pandemic showed that in the West, our relationship with death is changing and that Gen Z is the main driver for that change. So the Gen Z respondents in this survey, 
were four times more likely than baby boomers to have made a bucket list. They were three times more likely to talk to their friends about death and four times more likely to talk to their families about death. This study also found that millennials are the most likely to have become more scared of dying since the start of the pandemic. Thinking about why Gen Z may have a healthier relationship with death than baby boomers and even millennials, I think this makes perfect sense when we go back to what we were talking about around nationality and the concept that maybe death awareness has a inverse relationship with death anxiety. We're living in a time that is forcing death awareness on us, whether it's a tragedy happens on the other side of the world and we get a notification on our phone about it immediately, or thinking about the pandemic and how the New York Times had a literal death ticker, like an active live count of how many people globally had died on the front page of the New York Times app for years. And I think the more online you live your life, the more that's the case. And you might be thinking nothing about that is new. Sad things have always happened and certain people have always paid attention. And that's true. But I think the level of immediacy we have to information like that and the extent to which we often learn about it on an involuntary basis by way of things like notifications and social media, that is new. And thinking about that forced death awareness, whether it's from the pandemic or just from the 24-hour news cycle we live in, for every generation before Gen Z, that's an adjustment. It hasn't always been that way. Whereas for Gen Z, that's just sort of the way life is. And the scope of tragedies that we learn about now is so much wider than it used to be. And because of all this, it doesn't surprise me at all that Gen Z has a healthier relationship with death compared to older U.S. generations. One silver lining of this landscape that we're living in is that it has forced many of us to reckon with our mortality. And I think for millennials and generations older than millennials, that reckoning has felt really confronting. Whereas for Gen Z, this constant awareness of tragedies and death and new tragedies and new sources of death all the time is sort of how it's always been. And that's not to say the pandemic wasn't hard on Gen Z people, but rather just to say that even before the pandemic, I think Gen Z was pretty disillusioned pretty death aware relative to older U.S. generations. They live in spaces on the internet where everyone talks about everything and everyone jokes about everything. They have this really dark sense of humor. All that to be said, I think because they've grown up with constant access to news of tragedy and death, they have been forced to integrate that into their identities, and so they're much more death aware. But again, these are just generalizations, and they definitely don't ring true for everyone. I know a lot of Gen Z people who are really anxious about death, and I would guess that many of you that are listening to this are Gen Z, and maybe you're listening to this because you're really anxious about death. And so I just want to say there's no moral hierarchy in any of this. Like, you're no worse for being afraid of death or better for not being afraid of death. We all just experience these things differently. Okay, so far in this episode, we've talked about what death anxiety 
is. We've talked about how maybe it's hardwired into us with this tension between our survival instinct and our awareness of the inevitability of our death. We've talked about how death anxiety is a timeless problem that has shown up since the dawn of human history and how it's very shaped by culture. So for the next part of this episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what death anxiety has looked like for me. Like we talked about when we were talking about what death anxiety is in the call it lesser fear of death scale, death anxiety is experienced really differently by different people. And you and I could both experience death anxiety and not relate to each other's experiences at all. So know that as I get into talking about what this has looked like for me, I'm just one person. And if it doesn't match your experience, that doesn't mean that what you've experienced isn't valid or scary or hard. I also just want to say, I don't blame anyone for the fact that I've struggled with this. Getting your arms around your mortality is going to be hard no matter what toolbox you're handed to tackle it with. And I was a very morbidly curious kid, and I think the adults in my life handled that really well. Okay, so what has death anxiety looked like for me? My death anxiety has shapeshifted throughout my life, and I've experienced a lot of different forms of it. I've always had an innate fear of death. I would say probably most people have that, but as my understanding of what death was and what it meant changed, what I felt fearful about also changed. So when I was a young kid, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, like I've mentioned, and I believed in a very literal idea of afterlife. I believed that upon death, our bodies died, but everything else about us, our identity, our thoughts, our memories, the whole picture of who you are, minus your body, was basically transported to another physical place, being heaven in the sky or hell in the core of the earth, and there was no possible outcome where consciousness just stopped. And I'm not necessarily saying this is exactly how concepts of afterlife were taught to me or that that's the canon of the Southern Baptist Church or anything like that. That's just how my child brain understood it. So I had no concept of death, no idea of the possibility of death, beyond death of the body, as a really young child. And until later in childhood, it didn't occur to me to doubt the existence of heaven and hell or any of that. It was as true to me as anything else, as the fact that 2 plus 2 was 4, or Virginia was the next state over, or Whatever other run-of-the-mill fact someone told me, I had no reason to question it. So as a young child, I didn't have fear or anxiety about the elements of death that would ultimately scare me most later in life, because I wasn't aware of them. But I was already aware of and anxious about the bodily elements of death. So for example, my childhood friend told me this story about someone who died and ultimately needed to be exhumed. And in the story, when they opened the coffin, there were scratch marks in it, meaning the person had been alive in the coffin. And I have no idea if this story was true, but when I tell you, it horrified me. 
I remember asking my mom about it, asking her, how do they make sure that doesn't happen to people? And obviously at this age, I didn't understand modern medicine. I didn't understand embalming processes, that sort of thing that makes being buried alive close to impossible in a modern burial where hospitals and funeral homes are involved. But the fear of being presumed dead when I wasn't And the fear of waking up in a coffin specifically, that was one of the first manifestations of death anxiety that I can remember. And back in the day, this used to be a pretty valid fear. I know there's a story of this man named Matthew Wall who lived in like 1600s England, I think. And he was dead in his coffin at his funeral and the pallbearers were walking him up to his grave to be buried and someone tripped and dropped the coffin and he woke up he was alive or at least that's how the story goes you never really know with a story that old but i do know this is true in the late 1700s in germany they had something called leakenhaus which were like death waiting rooms essentially where dead bodies would be put for a little waiting period between death and burial And the point was to make sure they were dead, to make sure they didn't wake up. It was some poor young boy's job to sit in there with all the smelly, scary, dead bodies and make sure none of them woke up and were like, hey, I'm alive, don't bury me. So if you hate your job, first of all, I'm sure it's terrible and I'm on your side, but at least you are not the German death waiting room leaking house boy. Also, much more recently, in 1937 in France, there was a man named Angelo Hayes who was in a motorcycle accident and presumed and pronounced dead by doctors and was buried but then had to be exhumed two days later because of an investigation about the circumstances of his death and when they exhumed him. He was alive. He fully recovered and went on to live a full life and actually invented something called a security coffin, which was a coffin with a radio transmitter and a toilet in it. If you're wondering how I know all of this, I read this book recently called Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? It's by a mortician, Caitlin Doty. And it's a book for children that basically addresses different questions they have about death, one of which was... How do they know I'm not just asleep? And it had all those stories in there. Another really interesting form of death anxiety I experienced as a child before my primary fears around death surfaced. I had a false memory of a traumatizing experience involving death that I now am certain did not actually happen. Let me explain. So when I was a child... I thought I had previously had an experience where I was at a funeral home, attending a funeral. I wandered out of the room where the funeral and my family was and walked down the hall and looked into another room and saw just piles of dead bodies. I can still remember, quote unquote, remember what this looked like in my head. Now, as an adult, any of us can hear that story and know it doesn't make any sense, right? Like, funeral homes obviously don't have stacks of dead bodies laying out. But as a child, I didn't know that. I really thought this had happened. And I know it didn't, and that no iteration of it did, because 
not only does it not make any sense, but I also never went to a funeral as a child. So I don't know if this was a dream or just some cute little childhood psychosis or what, but as a child, I really thought that I had had this scary secret experience relating to death. I would be really interested to hear if any of you have ever had something similar to that happen to you, if you've ever had a false memory. All that to be said, as a young child, I was fearful about the bodily elements of death because that was the only type of death I was aware of. Eventually, though, I landed on my actual core fear related to death, which for me was fear of an eternity of non-consciousness, fear of an oblivion of non-experience, fear of never experiencing anything again. Now, I will never forget the first time it occurred to me as a possibility that the concepts of afterlife that I knew were not true and that perhaps when we died, we just died and there was nothing after that. I distinctly remember lying in bed and having this realization and I thought about all the millennia of human history before me and how I did not have any memory or awareness or thoughts during that time. And it was the first time I considered that maybe death would just be a return to that void. So really, I guess it was the first time it occurred to me that maybe my mind would die. And at that time, I didn't really have any meaningful concept or awareness of the idea of soul. So mind and body were the total summation of who I understood myself to be. So that was the first time I ever considered the possibility of an eternity of unconscious oblivion, which was terrifying to me for decades. I really struggled to cope with this. I couldn't let my mind wander because if I did, I would land on that. As a child and teen, I had a few coping mechanisms that I used to try to deal with this. I had this one little primitive meditation thing I did. I wouldn't have called it that at the time. I didn't know what meditation was. But when I was experiencing intrusive, scary thoughts related to death or anything else, I would on my inhale, think the words, no thoughts. And on my exhale, I would think the word computing. And I don't know why I chose that word, but I would inhale, no thoughts, exhale, computing. And I think I was just trying to say anything again and again to not leave space for thinking. So I had some ways I tried to cope, but mostly the main way I tried to cope was by trying really hard to believe. I desperately wanted to have childlike, convicted faith, and I tried really hard to have it. And I think here I'll cut to 2020, late 2020, when I found myself in deep spiritual crisis. I was actively deconstructing my Christianity, and that wasn't something I undertook voluntarily. It wasn't a road I wanted to go down. It felt a little bit like coming out in the sense that it just sort of started to come out of me involuntarily. And this is something that had been going on for years to an extent. I had been critically assessing my faith and 
changing my beliefs for years. But 2020 was the point where I started to have this realization that I had changed so much about what my faith meant to me and changed things again and again that I would have previously said were irrevocable or definitional. And I had this realization of, if I can change anything about this identity, then what really even is it to me? And I like to think of these things coming out, spiritual growth, whatever, as these conscious choices that I've made. But really what has always happened in my experience is I've run out of gas fighting my nature. I've run out of gas fighting my nature and I've had no choice but to surrender to the next scary steps of getting real with myself. So I found myself in this forced surrender to spiritual uncertainty and with that to uncertainty with respect to what happens after we die, if anything. And this is around the time when I started practicing death meditation. And when I say death meditation, I'm referring to meditation and contemplation practices aimed at drawing your awareness to the fact that you will die with the aim of increasing your appreciation of your life and helping you manage your fear of death by familiarizing yourself with it. Death meditation is primarily a Buddhist practice. It's referred to in Buddhism as Marana Sati. Marana means death in Pali, the language of the Buddha, and Sati means mindfulness. I want to pause here and say that a lot of what I've learned about traditional Buddhist death meditation. I've learned from Nikki Mirgafori, who is a super interesting human. She is a AI researcher, has a PhD, advises Silicon Valley startups, but she's also an internationally renowned Buddhist death meditation teacher. And what death meditation can look like in practice varies a ton from what I think most of us who are not Buddhist monks would find very shocking. So there's a practice of corpse meditation, where the idea is that you actually go witness and sit with and contemplate a human corpse. And that practice can involve traditionally viewing a corpse in different stages of decomposition. That is not at all what I do. And you might be thinking, why on earth would anyone do that? The idea with all types of death meditation from severe to more mild is this theme that we've talked about throughout this episode that generally and to an extent more death awareness correlates with more death acceptance. Now I say to an extent because do I think that witnessing a corpse decay would necessarily improve most people's relationship with death? No, I do not think that. People who do practice that, Buddhist monks, would never, ever introduce that practice to someone who wasn't already deep in a death contemplation practice. So for most of us in the West, that's not the case, and that wouldn't be an appropriate or beneficial thing for us to do. So what type of death contemplation would likely be beneficial for most of us? So when I first started this type of practice, I stumbled in it from a very intuitive place of sensing that normalizing and exposing myself regularly to the fact that I would die and the concept of impermanence generally and the notion of uncertainty 
with respect to what may happen after I die could help me feel less shocked and horrified about those facts. So in Buddhism, there are five daily reflections related to Maranasati that the Buddha suggested people contemplate around regularly. The first is, just like everyone, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. So this can just look like drawing your awareness to the fact that you will get old. You will not always be young. The second one is similar. Just like everyone, I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. The next one is just like everyone, I am subjected to the results of my own actions. Next, just like everyone, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. So this is what I mainly focused on, reflecting and acknowledging and meditating around the idea that I will die. Everyone will die. Everyone I know will die. Everyone I love will die. And I will die. And that sounds really terrifying if you're anxious about death. And it was terrifying. But I'm so glad that I surrendered to that terror because if I hadn't, I couldn't be in the place where I am now, which is a place of the most spiritual peace I've ever felt and the most genuine and profound sense of spirituality I've ever felt and the most acceptance and lack of fear around death that I've ever felt. And for me, sometimes this looked like long, silent meditations focused exclusively on this concept. And if you're interested in that, I've recorded some of those meditations that I'm going to put on my app soon if they're not already there. But a lot of the time it didn't look like that. A lot of the time it was just in a nice moment resonating on the concept of impermanence. And that's the last one of the five daily reflections. It's just like everyone, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing will change, will become otherwise will become separated from me. So I think that's a really easy entry point to this type of contemplation. If you're someone who's really anxious around death and even the idea of contemplating or meditating on the idea that you will die is a lot, which it definitely was for me when I first started this type of practice, maybe you just start by meditating on the concept of impermanence. You don't have to jump right to impermanence of the lives of the people you love most. It could be, I'm really enjoying this dinner I'm eating right now, and I am consciously making myself aware that it will end. And because it will end, I'm going to really make sure to enjoy it right now, the only time I'll ever have it. I'm really enjoying this fun moment I'm having with a friend, and I'm aware that it won't last forever, so let me really be here. I'm really enjoying this weekend day. I'm really enjoying having free time and I'm making myself aware that I won't always have free time. So let me enjoy it while I have it. Let me not rot on TikTok all day. And you can work your way up to things like, I'm really enjoying this time with my family member and I'm aware that I have not infinite number of times with them. So let me really enjoy this one. I am really grateful for this day and I'm aware that I have a finite number of days and they will run out. So let me spend this one on joy. So do you see what I mean? Kind of gradually tilting these reflections more towards awareness of death, but starting with just awareness of impermanence, from impermanence of simple things. I really love living in this apartment and I won't always 
to awareness of more heavy things. I really enjoy time with my family, and I won't always have that. And Nikki Mirgafori also recommends visual cues to help you remember to reflect in this way. So maybe that's like a post-it somewhere you sit a lot that says something like, life is short, or you are going to die if you feel ready for that one. Or YOLO, if you very much don't feel ready for you are going to die. But basically just a visual cue to remind yourself that every moment you find yourself in is fleeting. And if you're anxious about impermanence and death, that will probably feel really confronting and scary at first. But my experience has been that with time, it has actually made me feel so much more joyful, so much more appreciative of my life, so much more present when I'm spending time with others. And when I live my life in that mindset, in this place of presence and appreciation, I find I feel less anxious about the idea that it will come to an end someday. And I also think that this death meditation practice is almost the entire reason that I experienced a spiritual breakthrough last year. So I want to tell y'all a little bit about that to wrap up this episode. So I had a really profound spiritual experience in March, totally unexpectedly. I call it an ego nap because that's what it felt like to me. It felt like just a very brief pulling back of the curtain of my ego. So I was headed up to this cabin for the weekend with my then boyfriend, now fiance. And the plan was I was going to drive up alone and spend two days there by myself, and then he was going to meet me there on the third day. And so I'm driving up Friday night after work, and this was a few months into my death meditation practice when it was still feeling scary. I was starting to get the benefits of appreciating my life more, but I still felt really fearful about death. And I was really reaching a fever pitch of spiritual crisis. So this time we were talking about before when I found myself on this ledge of forced surrender, I was very much in that. On the drive up, I drive this tiny little smart car. I'm a terrible driver. I'm terrified of driving. And I round a corner and I almost hit an 18-wheeler. And That really shook me up. So for the rest of this drive, I was just having really intrusive thoughts, seeing myself again and again, hitting that 18-wheeler and dying, hitting that 18-wheeler, just really intrusively seeing that on a loop. And I get to the cabin, and at that time I was reading Karma by Sadhguru, And of course, I'm right at this part where he says something to the effect of, and I'll add a little extra content warning here because this sentence sent me into a spiral. He said something to the effect of, no matter where you're going, no matter what you're doing, if you're walking home from work, you're headed out the door to be with friends, you are never walking anywhere other than to your grave. So basically like the ugly, mean cousin of Ram Dass's whole, we're all just walking each other home thing. Just a very blunt, scary statement of the march of time. So I did not like that. And I fell into a pretty intense panic. And so this cabin that I was at was a getaway house. So getaway houses like on purpose don't have Wi-Fi. They are not in areas that have great cell reception because the idea is that you sort of disconnect. And so a lot of the time when I find myself in a panic, like I did after reading that sentence, I will sort of try to over stimulate myself in order to get my mind off it whether that's watching netflix or scrolling tiktok whatever but i didn't have the option to do that at this cabin there was no service so i had no choice 
And again, seeing this theme of just forced surrender, but I had no choice but to just surrender to this fear. So for hours, I just lied in the bed at that cabin and let that fear wash over me. At some point, I must have fallen asleep. I don't remember falling asleep. And when I wake up the next morning, I'm not really thinking about it that much. I'm excited to be at the getaway house. I film my little morning content, whatever. I meditate. Didn't do any serious death meditation. Just a typical little morning meditation. And I made coffee. And I pour myself a cup of coffee and I get in the bed. And one thing that is uniform across all getaway houses is one of the walls is a big window. And so that was the case here sitting in this bed next to this huge window with trees outside the window. And as corny as it sounds, I see this bird. That is the moment that this whole experience started. And this is the part where it gets really hard to explain what I experienced without sounding like a woo-woo asshole. And I really don't want to sound that way because number one, I don't want you to think I'm a woo-woo asshole. But number two, I feel like spiritual experiences are very frequently explained through that lens of psychedelic and sacred geometry and all of that. And I totally believe that that's how a lot of people experience big spiritual moments in their life. But for me, it didn't feel like that at all. And I think having heard only those types of descriptions of spiritual breakthroughs, it never occurred to me that I was someone who could have one. Because I'm just not someone who experiences the world in that psychedelic, ooey-gooey way. My spiritual breakthrough felt very simple. It felt like this simple remembering of something that I've always known. And I think what was most revolutionary about it for me, rather than any takeaway that I got from it, is that I experienced it versus intellectually accepting it. I experienced the fact that all I am, ultimately, essentially, is one tiny fragment of consciousness. And that's all every other living thing is too. And while, yes, we, the human Victoria, the mind and body and identity Victoria will die, that's not really a significant thing for me, the tiny little piece of consciousness that I actually am. And I'm hesitant to say even that because language like that can really make me mad sometimes. Especially if you're grieving and you hear someone say something like that, it's like, Okay, so death is nothing and I shouldn't be sad about death. That's not at all what I mean. I just mean that the thing we are ultimately, which is what I think of as divinity, is not attached to our current identities. And the continuance of its existence is not contingent on the existence of our current identity. The day after I die, birds will be in trees trying to figure out what food they can get or whatever birds do with their days. Bunch of babies will be born. Will be a bunch of little kids' fifth birthday. People will fall in love. The world will keep turning. And there will be plenty of consciousness to go around. And that's a deeply unoriginal thought. And I have read a lot of different teachings to that effect. And I've always intellectually accepted them, but it felt very different to experience it. I would compare it to if you've read everything there is to read about hunger, you've heard people who've experienced hunger explain it to you, 
credible people who you trust, you're going to believe that hunger exists. But that's not the same thing as feeling your stomach growl. That was sort of the distinction for me. I really felt like I experienced that totality of what I am. And that made me so much less afraid. And when I came out of it, I was speechless. I was speechless for so long. I tried to call Roy, my fiance, and I could not speak. And I think in the days after, I started to become afraid that the peace that I had found would go away and that I would go back to feeling afraid. Oh, I forgot to tell you the weirdest thing about when I came out of it. I thought it had just been a minute or a moment and it had been hours. It had been hours. I've been sitting perfectly still holding a cup of coffee for an hour or two. But the peace hasn't gone away. It's been about a year and I'm so grateful. So, so grateful I could cry for that experience. I couldn't tell you the exact way to have an experience like that. I couldn't replicate it myself. But I do think this, and if there's any takeaway from this episode, I think it's this. It is extremely normal to feel afraid of death. It is psychologically hardwired into us like we talked about with Becker, the paradox of being human. It has been being experienced by everyone who has existed forever, all the way back to Gilgamesh. It's extremely normal. But like we learned about by looking at the demographic breakdowns of how and to what extent people experience death anxiety now, I think both the nationality element of that, looking at Eastern versus Western trends, and the age element of that, looking at Gen Z, what we can glean from that is that the people who tend to have healthier relationships with death are people who are more death aware. And so while it's extremely normal to be afraid of death and very normal to avoid things we're afraid of, pushing back on that impulse and cultivating some awareness around death, contemplating death, or even just contemplating impermanence could help. And that's not to say anything is going to make the idea of death, both with respect to yourself or others, people that you love, a comfortable thing. Mourning death, grieving others, mourning the passing of time, all of that is very inevitable and normal, in my opinion. But when we stay aware about the reality of death and impermanence throughout our lifetime, we can digest that mourning one bite at a time. And when we do it that way, it can taste bittersweet because it can be, I won't always have this and that's sad, but hey, I have it right now, so let me really enjoy the taste. Versus what I think a lot of people in the West do is avoid thinking about this sort of thing until the end of their life. And then it's no longer bittersweet. It's look what I had and didn't appreciate that I'll never be able to get back. And cultivating this awareness doesn't have to look like a really somber, serious, morbid death meditation practice. Rather, it can just be a practice of on a moment-to-moment basis throughout your days paying attention to the ephemerality of every moment and appreciating every moment a little bit more because you're aware of how fleeting it is. And the last thing I'll say is that if you're in the thick of intense, debilitating death anxiety, I know how frustrating and unrelatable it can feel to hear prescriptive anything. And a lot of the time you don't want someone to tell you how they got out of it or how they think you should get out of it. And rather you just want someone to acknowledge that what you're feeling is really hard and scary. So let me do that. If that's where you are, what you're feeling is really hard and scary. And I know how 
consuming and debilitating it can feel. And I fully believed about myself that I would always just have this pit in my stomach that I would always have one eye on the clock. And I'm not going to try to promise you anything about you, but I will say I would have never believed you if you told me that I would feel the way I feel currently. So there's hope. Okay, that's all I got. If you listen this far, thank you so much. I can't even tell you how amazing that is to me and how much I've enjoyed talking to you guys about soul gum. So if you listened, I would love to hear your thoughts no matter what they are. These are just my thoughts. I'm not an expert at all on any of this and I learn so much from y'all and I'm really grateful you're here and I hope you have an amazing morning or afternoon or evening and I'll see you next time.